Welcome to another episode of Corkout History, where we drink Portuguese wine and we talk about Portuguese history, mostly the wine. My name is Andre, and I'm Inês. And welcome to Corkout History. Hello, hello, hello. Good evening, Andre. How are you today? Hello, Inês. I am good. How are you? I'm great. We are here to record a very special episode, isn't it? You're feeling spooky? Yes. Ooh, all right. Ready yes, to get started? It's, it's Halloween season. It is Halloween season. And we are here today for a very special episode and with some very special wine. Okay, so what are we drinking tonight? Well... Tonight, we are drinking wine of the dead, you can say. Wine of the dead? Yes. In Portuguese, it's called vinho dos mortos. Okay. And yeah, I would translate it as wine of the dead. It sounds as if I don't have a bottle in front of me. I do, I know. <laughs> but but I'd never seen this wine before today. And it is quite a special wine. So let me tell you a little bit about its history. This wine actually dates back to the time of the second French invasion in Portugal. So begin The one we're drinking tonight. The one we... Well, no, not the one we're drinking tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah, I don't think that would be too good for our tummies, probably. <laughs> no, this kind of wine, this uh, brand of wine, dates yep. back to the second French invasions in Portugal. That means beginning of the 19th century. And it is from the region of Boutiques in... Boutiques. Boutiques, yes. Boutiques. Boutiques. <laughs> <laughs> in Trás-os-Montes, so on the very okay. north part of the country. It's uh, very fitting to our theme as well, isn't uh, it? Ooh, it is, but you still don't have the full story. So... Dating back to the Second French Invasions, people, they were trying to hide all the goods that they had, trying to keep them safe from the French, right? So it shouldn't come as a shock to you. Now, wine is quite valuable to us all. And wine was also one of the goods that they were trying to hide. So they would bury the wine in the right. cellars, you know, okay. and... So the French would come and go, had no idea. And once people would come back, they could unbury the wine. Right. That's okay, why. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's a That's wine That's why that it's has called been... wine of the dead. Exactly. And they call it like burying the wine oh. and unburying the wine. And uh, mm. yeah, so we can say we're having zombie wine tonight. <laughs> we're having zombie wine tonight. Very fitting. Yeah. Yes. We should try it because it's meant to taste quite different to normal wine. So shall we okay. shall give it a try? The first sip. Mm -hmm. Will we survive? Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Hmm. Oh. Right. Okay. It is quite different, mm. isn't it? It has a very particular taste. I was not expecting this. No, there's a little bit of it's slightly sparkled. <laughs> <laughs> there is some bubbles, isn't it? It's slightly, Very you know, subtle. Okay. All right. So zombie wine, sparkly wine. Let's. But it's good. But it's it, good. It it's is, not, it we're is not great, saying it's. Yeah. I'm not saying it's bad. No, 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 no. Nah, I think. We just didn't expect Funny. it. <laughs> no. <laughs> but no, it's no. very particular. Very. Cool, and I think very fitting for tonight's episode. And what are we bringing for tonight's episode? Ooh, we're bringing on all Ooh. the spooky stuff. 
So, let's start with an ancient Galaico-Lusitanian god. Okay, what's Galaico-Lusitanian, <laughs> for those who don't know? <laughs> yes, ground me, please. Galaico-Lusitanian means from the area of Galicia and Lusitania. Lusitania was the name given to parts of Portugal during the Roman times. Okay, that makes sense. So we're talking about a god from there on this Halloween episode. Yes, we're talking about a very old god from the people who were in the peninsula before the Romans arrived. And uh, this god is named Kroga. Kroga. Kroga, yes. The name is actually believed to come from the Proto-Celtic Kroko. I'm not sure if that's how they used to pronounce it, but we're going to go with that because who knows. Not fluent in Proto-Celtic. We are not, no, definitely not. So the word Kroko, which means mountain, hill or a kern. What's a kern? It's, you know, when in mountains and paths, sometimes hikers or travelers, they pile up those stones to make sort of a little landmark kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah, so Mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about here. Okay, so croco means Uh, all of those things. Exactly, mountain, hill, corn, like that's our best guess anyway. And it's actually from this same root that the Irish word for mountain, which again, I'm not Irish, so please if I'm completely murdering this, but should be something like Kruak, Kruak, something like that. So that's the Irish word for mountain. And you can see that the root is similar and it's meant to come from Kroko as well. And there's also the Welsh word. Again, I'm definitely not Welsh. So yeah, forgive me here, but something like Kruk, which means burial monument, which burial monuments very often were marked by cairns like the, the piled up stones kind of thing back in that time. So we have a word here that influences words in the Iberian Peninsula and also comes to be the root to many words in the Gaelic languages. This word, the croco, is also related to the idea of heads or skull and it has words like croca or coca, meaning head, which are all coming from the same root. So a lot of things. Yeah. So basically, croco is the root to mountain hill in a bunch of languages and also for the idea of like skull and head in Portuguese with the words like croca and coca, but actually as well for the Cornish word Krogan and the Irish Klokken, which are all meant to come from here. Again, I have no idea if I'm saying these words right. I'm probably not. I barely speak English as it is, so <laughs> let alone Cornish and, you know, Irish. And oh God, why did I do this to myself? Anyway, let's move on to some words that I can pronounce. It is interesting to see that, for instance, in Portuguese, the expression bater mal de cuca. <laughs> which means someone's, you know, not quite right in the head. Um, right. In this expression, kuka means it's head. head, means yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, for instance, in the word kukurutu, which is mm-hmm. the Portuguese word for, like, the crown of the head or, like, the highest place, would both stem from the same root as well. 
Right, so a lot of things coming from this Kroko, yeah. Krauko, Kroga, Krug, 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 exactly. Kroka. Okay, <laughs> yeah. But what about this god? So th- there are four references to this god that have been found to this Kroga, ancient <coughs> Galaico Lusitanian god, and one in Galicia and three in northern Portugal. So everything up north. Of yeah, the country. in that area, it um, seems to be very restricted area. to that area. And he's possible. He, they, them, the he, she, they are related to death or protection of these populations that inhabited in these very mountainous regions, because yes, Portugal also has mountains. For those of you who might not be aware of that, and. You were talking about these currents and they are still important landmarks for shepherds. Yeah, even today. Um, yeah. And in Portuguese, the word for them is muledro, which possibly also stems from another proto-Celtic root, which means worshipping, since cairns were typically used, as you said before, as burial monuments as well. And it's possible that there was some relation to worshipping the dead mm. in those kind of... I wouldn't call them constructions, but on this kind of yeah. piling of stones. <laughs> yeah. Marking of place. They are they are landmarked, yeah. I think we can call them constructions. Why not? <laughs> I don't want to diminish them, but also they're just rocks on top of rocks. <laughs> no, no, but I know. It's a hard balance. You need to balance the rocks on top of each other. <laughs> So that's the thing. I'm not, I'm not, I really, I don't want to play with the gods and I don't want to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. But so this, let's call them landmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so these landmarks that are still important today also come with a lot of tales because you can usually find them in places that are a bit inhospitable as well mm-hmm. and in the middle of nowhere. So yeah. it's normal that tales come. They have a certain allure it. about them, don't they? It's yeah, a little they bit. do, they do. <laughs> And they say that if you move a rock from one of them, it will return to its place by morning. <laughs> and I've heard, I've actually heard other stuff like that it's bad luck or that you right. really shouldn't do it. Never did it whenever I no. came across some. Just because, yeah, better not risk it anyway. There's also in Portugal and in some regions of Spain the tales of a creature that would be called coca or coca or Kuka or cuckoo, <laughs> so small variations of similar words, and of course this word is also very similar to the name Kroga, and this would be a creature akin to some sort of boogeyman today, and used to scare naughty children into behaving, so it's possible that this Koka is the old pagan deity Kruga preserved in the collective folk memory, but as with so many others, demonized by Christianity and today reduced to some sort of legend, tale, fairy tale, boogeyman story. Mm. It's very interesting, isn't it? And I read this theory that the Portuguese expression estar coca, which, mm-hmm. I mean, we can translate as spying, maybe? I mean... Yeah. Maybe something like keeping an eye on something discreetly, I would say. Anyway, that Stara Coca might come from how this figure of the Coca is always surveying children. So she's always, you know, mm. keeping an eye on them, seeing if they're naughty, getting ready to steal them away and stuff like that. I found that quite surprising there. And 
since we are on the matter of words, let me point out the similarities that we can find between Kroger and the Irish god, again, sorry god, Krom Kruak, something like that. I'm not sure, Irish people, please let me know how you pronounce this. Anyway, the Irish god, my best guess, Krom Kruak who seems to have been related to fertility and agriculture and seasonal and renewal of life functions. His worship seems to have been ended by St. Patrick and later demonized by Christians, similar to our theory about Kroger. So very similar names stemming from the same root and who might have suffered the same PR destiny kind of thing <laughs> right <laughs> yeah very true very true and there's even more legends of like similar creatures or entities like in the area of Monsan Monsan mm. is um, a lovely place in Portugal you should all go visit <laughs> <laughs> there we go our touristic time yeah there's a legend of another creature that's called Cuca and this time it is a dragon and in Brazil, the legend of the Cuca is is a tale about a, f a witch that has the face of an alligator and uh, kidnaps children in the night. So is is this Brazilian one just a mix of the, the other two? And it's it's curious because I, I guess we mentioned like boogeyman and that's not really clear. But there is this idea that the Cuca is, I mean, in Portugal, every word is gendered, isn't it? So Cuca would be like a female boogeyman kind of thing, even though that doesn't really come across in English. So, boogeywoman. Yeah, it would be, well, some sort of female boogeyman thing. And it's interesting to see that junction in Brazil. Oh, I'm already afraid and we've not even dived into <laughs> any more, but all of these entities around, not comfortable. Ooh. Okay, but... Let's dive into Halloween then, if we haven't already. And tell me, what would you say is the Halloween tradition? Like the most, I don't know, emblematic and transversal one. What do you okay, think? Like now, nowadays? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so definitely pumpkins. Yeah, I think so, isn't it? Like pumpkins yeah. everywhere that you have. Carving pumpkins, pumpkins <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, you can't do a Halloween poster thingy without a pumpkin, right? I think that carving pumpkins might well be the most popular Halloween tradition. It's an ancient tradition that has spread all across the world. Today we carve a face, maybe a scary face to be on theme, or a Halloween motif, something like that, because sometimes we feel like being a little bit creative. And we put a little can to lit it up to all its glory. We turn pumpkin carving into a competition or, you know, post it on Pinterest. Or Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whichever social media to calls you fancy. In the past, however, it is believed that the faces carved might have meant to represent your ancestors who had passed. Oh. So uh, a little bit different to trending Pinterest bit, posts. Uh, yeah, a, a little bit more meaningful perhaps mm. or more connected to the other side. Yeah, so pumpkins. And yet it wasn't always, you know, the 
famous pumpkins that were used to this effect. In many countries, people used to carve turnips. And in turnips? Yeah, I know. Sounds weird, isn't it? How I, can you even carve a turnip? No, I struggle to see it as well. But apparently, <laughs> all over Europe, people were carving turnips, actually. <laughs> all over Europe, carving turnips. I Look know, at that. I know. And in Portugal, we used to carve gourds or to use the Portuguese word, cabaça. So in Portugal... Cabaça. Yeah, so in Portugal we used to carve cabasas or gourds, I guess our English-speaking friends will know. It's just a pumpkin-ish little vegetable, isn't it? Well, it's a gourd, guys. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to stop trying to. <laughs> we will post pictures of cabasas. <laughs> we will, yes. Yes, very good yeah. call. So, if you don't follow us on Instagram, go find us. <laughs> <laughs> now we come to the really curious thing. You thought pumpkins and all our previous talk wasn't really connected, but you might be a little bit surprised. You see, the carved pumpkin or jack-o'-lantern, as they are called in English. In some areas of Portugal, and particularly in the north of the country, these are called coca, or coco. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so it's all connected, you see. <laughs> Carving these coca seems to have been common practice in many regions in Portugal. These only seem to have lost traction during the 20th century. To the point where we might today think they are all important traditions, whereas in fact, all indicates that it was practiced since ancient times all over the peninsula. Oh, right. Okay. So that makes sense. And here we are. That's full circle. <laughs> yeah. And calling them coca brings us once again to its possible inspiration in the word and the god Kroga, further connecting the idea of heads to themes of death, skulls, and the dead ancestors to the celebration of Halloween. This is Halloween. Halloween, Halloween! <laughs> Not only that, but also the iconography of the human head is believed to have played a significant part in Celtic religion, referred to as head cult or the cult of the severed head, mm. evidence of the worshipping of severed heads, is scattered all over Europe. I mean, if that's not Halloween-y, what is, right? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> there we go. I read your mind. Oh my god. The veil so is you know, thin. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I record this podcast inside my closet <laughs> because it has great acoustics in yep, here. Well, yep. maybe you won't agree with this by the sound of our <laughs> podcast, but... I do have better acoustic here than in the outside. Anywhere else. So, <laughs> this is the so best we can do, I do guys. record this, which means I have a door behind my back right now, <laughs> and also lots of clothes and objects, and I'm talking about these things. I'm not comfortable at all tonight. And every once in a while, the pipes go... <laughs> yes, correct. Oh, this amazing. Is, I think yeah. that's the best place really to record the Halloween. If the lights go off, I'm cancelling this podcast. <laughs> Plus that's tonight it. we're recording at night as well. So And it's raining outside, <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's get back but, on track. Yeah, let's get back to the severed heads, Where we right? <laughs> oh my god. Oh. So, all right, before we go into this cult of the severed heads, there are several things that we need to mention when looking into this research. Firstly, 
is the term Celtic in itself. So it is trickier than one might anticipate, being the subject of very heated debates, of which, guys, I have absolutely no intention of partaking. Tonight, at least, no. So to simplify, let's assume that when we refer to Celts, we mean the common notion of the collection of Indo-European peoples identified by their use of Celtic languages and other cultural similarities. All taking place in an area that goes from southwest Portugal to northwest Ireland, let's say the extremities, and to as far east as Turkey. So That's a very big area. Yeah, it's basically Europe, not so much around the Mediterranean, but it's basically Europe. And this is not all, things get even trickier when trying to define dates. But they're usually associated with the Iron Age. And for simplicity's sake, let's say, broadly speaking, we are talking about the first millennia before the Common Era. Now, <laughs> you will find that I went through all that trouble of defining the period to then go on and tell you that a lot of the relevant archaeological evidence predates those dates. So it goes from the Paleolithic to Proto-Celtic peoples to then finally flourish during the Celtic period. But that, I think that we have to look at that with some normality because we're talking a, about a huge piece of territory that does not develop at the same time, at the same rhythm. So, of course, that evidences can come up in one place and not in the other. Different stages of the community and religion for these people's all yeah. over, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like everything even gets a bit murkier when we try to understand how these people lived, or even worse, what they believed in. I mean, there are hardly any written records. Like, these populations were not in the habit of writing, and those that exist are written by other populations about them. For instance, like we will see with Roman references or Greek references to their contemporary Celtic neighbors. So then there's archaeology, which is instrumental. I can't explain how crucial archaeology is, but I mean, there's a lot of challenges with that as well, right? Like we find this little bit of something and we're like, oh, this means that they believed in God knows what. So it's difficult. It's like you were saying, it's all these different people for over a millennia, in all these different areas. Yeah, but then again, playing in our favor, we do have this idea of a cultural continuum in this area, in this region, at least in some of these regions, and things that lasted longer in time than others. Yeah. So, well, it's a bit going back to what we were saying in the beginning of all these words that come from words that already existed and all yeah. these traditions that developed from traditions that were already there. So that's kind of something playing in our favor to reach these populations somehow. Yeah, totally. And there's yeah. all the sort of overlapping, we can say, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. happens and that we have some insight into. For instance, like you were just mentioning, when you have Irish words coming from this Celtic root and you have Portuguese words coming from this Celtic root. Mm -hmm. There's that overlap and that's definitely one of the ways that we can... Mm -hmm. there. It's not like we're creating things out of thin air but we need to be yeah. aware of how little we know as well. 
Yeah, yeah, but it's that. It's not creating out of thin air. No, it's not no. like this cultural island that we don't know nothing about. No, uh, no, absolutely have, not. There's no I mean, connection, so yeah. But but wait, wait, wait. Are we have ever going <laughs> to get to the worshipping of chopped heads or are we not going to go back into that? I, I would know. feel better if we didn't, but... <laughs> But I know, I'm giving anyway. all these preliminary things like, oh, yeah. don't hold me to these words. Oh, Celts. Oh, no, this isn't <laughs> right. Oh, there's too much debate on this. Anyway, yes, you're absolutely right. Let's get into the severed heads. Okay, so according to class- classic ancient sources, Romans and Greeks, <laughs> these refer to the Celts as having a reputation of headhunters. Of course, this is Romans and Greeks writing about enemies. But apparently, this headhunting was seen as a proof of their prowess and the veneration of the heads as an important part of the body was way older than even the Celts or any of these communities. In Europe, there's evidence that this kind of worshipping started way back in Mesolithic times. As we say, the continuum is there, so this was already part of the European heritage long before any of these people that we're talking about now appeared. But, as in so many other instances, the Celts did borrow or inherited from others and they gave it their own particular taste and particular way of doing. So this worshipping of the head became a central element of their ideology and something that was a central theme throughout their histories. Yeah, it goes right from the beginning of the Celtic period to the very end. We can see this motif of the veneration of the Severed heads. Severed head. Yeah. yeah, and it's in art, it's in myth- their mythology. And one of the dominant current theories about it is that the, the Celts believed the head to have some connection to the divine or supernatural powers Mm -hmm. that were linked to protection, healing, or even prophecy making. Yeah, and we can divide this head cult into two phases. There's an earlier one related to the seasonal cycles, fertility and death, with the worship centered on the dead ancestors with more of a protective nature, we can say. And then... There's a later phase which evolves to the chopped heads of the enemy. So they become an object of power. For instance, later sources describe that by owning these, one might get the strength and power of their enemies. But also protection. So there's always the idea of protection. You have, for instance, people burying the heads and building on top to get the protection to the places they are Hmm. exactly Mm -hmm. yeah so the idea of protection is always there but yes on the second phase there's also this idea of an object of power and we have i'm not sure how you pronounce this but strabo in english i think that's how they have the name in portuguese we call him strabão strabo he's a roman historian and he refers the work of posidonius a Greek historian who wrote about how the Celts would preserve the heads of their enemies and preserve them in oil and display them to foreigners. They would even refuse to trade them by any amount of gold or 
riches that you would offer, just to get an idea of how important these heads were to them. And Diodorus Siculus, who is another Greek, also mentions the great care that they took in preserving these heads. Again, he mentions how they preserve them in oil and store them in boxes. Other sources mention how they would put the heads of their enemies on spikes. And Tito Livio, a Roman this time, describes how a Roman consul got his head turned into a goblet from which they would have drunk his blood. Nice. Yeah. Fancy, isn't it? Although this particular episode might not be very factual, there are some strong indications for the ritualistic use of skulls as goblets. So they were doing this. Maybe it didn't happen in this particular instance. Also, once again, let's remember, we can never say it too much. We ought to take the Greek and Roman sources with a pinch of salt. Especially when they are referring to other populations. Yeah. But not yeah. always believe them when they're talking about themselves either. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Anyway, but for that and to help us with those, let's say, more... Uh, inventive portraits we have archaeology archaeology does provide us with an ample collection related to this theme in portugal in particular in the south actually in alentejo in alentejo yes and the southern region of portugal that is riddled with archaeological finds that cover both these eras that we were talking about perhaps some of the most emblematic of this are the skulls showing signs of trepanning and what is trepanning? It's a surgical procedure in which a hole is drilled or scraped into the human skull. Uh, <laughs> not nice. Horrific, right? <laughs> yeah. Imagine and that without an aesthetic. I don't want to imagine that without <laughs> an aesthetic. I really don't. Surprisingly, the evidence shows that there was actually some degree of success on these interventions. And by success, <laughs> we mean that some people survived. We're not saying that it healed them or that it made any difference for whatever affliction drove them to drill a hole in the first place. But yes, yeah, we're... I, I confess myself a little bit skeptical on that regard. That yeah, it could as actually you should be, cure as anything. You should be. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's reasonable to assume that most trepanning interventions on living people would be for medical purposes, some apparently indicate that they might have been of ritualistic nature, and not only doing it on people that were alive, but they were also performing this in post-mortem, which obviously sounds much nicer. <laughs> I must say. And of course it says less about the medical intentions and more about this kind of ritual and what could be done with these skulls. Yeah, I mean, if you're already dead, we can assume that hardly they're not trying. Many, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hardly any medical intervention that could be done. Uh, yeah, and we can find these skulls in Alentejo? Yeah, we can find a few examples. And they have also found little bits of skull that got removed from by trepanning inbuilt into jewelry for instance which made many scholars believe that they might have served as good luck charms or things of the sort yeah lovely isn't it <laughs> yeah just carry <laughs> around a bit of your favorite skull 
<laughs> not not only the circular bits, but like just a chip of the skull, you know? <laughs> or just keep the do. whole skull to yourself. That was another <laughs> possibility. Decorate your skull. Do whatever you want to your skull. A little bit of arts and crafts, guys. <laughs> yeah, arts and crafts, but definitely some kind of ritual and some kind of magical or at least some kind yeah, of power yeah. connected to it. <laughs> Very cool stuff. <laughs> and also... I'm gonna keep on adding stuff to this, but also <laughs> some skulls show signs of the skull and tongue being cut out, which similarly might point to a ritualistic thing going on. I mean, if things weren't bad enough yet. <laughs> yeah. Holes, scalps, tongues being cut, great stuff. And in terms of burial, we also found skulls being kept separated from the rest of the body. This has happened often enough to be worthy of note and pointing to a particular consideration being paid to the head. So these heads were important. Yeah, everything seems to lead into that direction. Other than the skulls in themselves, we have the head motif being used in I mean, just about everything. There are statues, engravings, jewelry, anything you like. There are many terribly interesting examples all across the different ages, which, you know it, we will be sharing on Instagram. So, I'm, guys... I'm not doing any of those posts. I don't want to see any of this. <laughs> it's not... It, these... These are art pieces. Oh, this is a, no, this is our head motif. This is not the skulls. Okay, I can I'm handle not... art. I can handle art. Mm, all right. Maybe one or two skulls will pop up there, guys. <laughs> but yeah, now I'm talking about the art. Since we don't have written sources from these peoples, we have to interpret everything. Which, of course, means we might be spectacularly wrong about it all. Might be that the head was simply a very popular decorative motive throughout all the Celtic period. Or it might be that's all a product of violent battles and nothing more. Mm, all, find it hard to believe. Well, all we can do is get as much information as possible and use it to propose what we think is a most likely scenario. Such is history, this is the way things work. And I like to imagine they were worshipping dead heads. We've gone into the heads. What about the pumpkins? Ooh, Should we go back to the pumpkins? Let's go back to the pumpkins. Okay, so there are some Portuguese traditions for the pumpkins as well. So, for instance, in the region of Baira, and that's region in the to the inside of the country. Yeah, uh, Portugal, guys, it's this, like thin rectangle. rectangle so either you're on the coast or you're on the border with spain basically <laughs> yeah so correct. they're a little bit in terms of north south they're a little bit in the center towards north i guess towards east so to around around this area and around the city of viseu lovely city mm -hmm. yeah we've mentioned there was it a traditions before. we have there was a tradition of boys carrying around their cockage or carved pumpkins with a wee candle inside and stick them on large spikes on the evening before the 1st of November. Mm. Scholars have made a parallel between this tradition and similar practices mentioned by Diodorus about some Iberian troops that would use hats and that some archaeological find seems to corroborate. And just to be clear here, we're talking about 
putting human heads on spikes, not pumpkins. But of course, <laughs> I'm really glad that the, the boys were just carrying around their cockers, their carved pumpkins, and not on human the heads. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to note that in this region of Beira, there was the tradition of making and wearing masks made out of pumpkins at the time of desfolhada. Um, and these masks were also referred to as cocas or cocos. So I just said the big word there, desfolhada. This is not Halloween. It's usually earlier around September and it's the occasion when people get together to strip the leaves from the corn cobs. But I mean, it still has to be mentioned. Men would put on these pumpkin masks and disguise themselves with sheets and such and go yeah. around causing mischief. So it sounds very Halloween-y, doesn't it? It does, it does. And it's connected to this end-of-season moment as well, which also yeah. makes sense for the things that are the roots of the, the Halloween celebration. Yeah, you have the harvest, then you have the, once again, Kokush has the Carved pumpkins going back to Kroger. Yeah, always going back to Kroger here. Always going back to Kroger, guys. Another yeah. Halloween tradition oh, is, of course, trick-or-treating. And there are several of these traditions also in Portugal. In the region of Coimbra, which is in the center of the country, there was the tradition of the bread for the souls or bread for God, where groups of children would go knocking on doors, asking for bread and cakes while carrying their cockers, their carved pumpkins with them. And this is something that still happens. I don't know about the carrying the cockers. I've never seen anyone going around with a cocker, but going around to ask for bread on Halloween, well, people wouldn't be celebrating a Halloween, but rather the Feast of All Saints is something that still happens in Portugal. And I've done that when I was a kid. Yeah, we're not from Coimbra, but in our area, when I was little, people were still doing this. I, too, went on the 1st of November, knocking around doors and going like, yeah. Bolinhos, bolinhos, a porta dos santinhos. Which, <laughs> yeah. how would like, you translate like little, that? Little cakes, little cakes for the little saints. I <laughs> or something guess, like yeah, that. yeah, something like that. This tradition in Coimbra seems to have been a little bit more elaborate we can say yeah the cockish in the middle of it and also the idea that the bread and the cakes were a gift to the ancestors and record shows that these children would wear black and sometimes darken their faces to resemble the dead very similar to what we have now with trick-or-treating yeah to halloween and they would also sing little songs rhymes and ask for the donations as such thanking or cursing the house owners depending on their responses and apparently this is a tradition that seems to go back to the 15th century. Yeah, old. <laughs> old, and so, we've still done it. Yeah, and once again, going against that idea that we sometimes have, that all these Halloween traditions are just, you know, novelties in Portugal being imported from America and such. Yeah. Now, in the same area of Coimbra, but this time not involving pumpkins, there was another tradition which was setting the table and leaving food for the ancestors on this date. And there's a clear connection here to the ancient old pagan practices. Yeah, there is. And there's actually another celebration that we need to mention, which is the Festa da Cabra e do Canhoto, which means something like party of the goats and of the left-handed. 
Yeah, I would translate it like that, I guess. Sounds weird, in... but it also sounds weird in Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, and it's in Trás-os-Montes, so that's the furthest northwest top same... corner of Portugal. Yeah, same region where our wine is from. Gr ah, that's true, that's true, the wine's from there today. <laughs> so and... all lovely things coming from Trás-os-Montes. <coughs> And the celebrations of the goat and the left-handed are held around a big bonfire where they burn the canhoto. Canhoto means left-handed, as I said, but it also means just a very big, large log. Yeah, I think it's just the name they give to this large log. They get a huge log and they say they have to burn it and I think they call that one the canhoto. Yeah, and this bonfire will be used to cook the cabra. The goat. And the name of the celebration, Festa da Cabra e do Canhoto, Feast of the Goat and of the Log. Burn a log to cook a goat. Sounds great, guys. <laughs> the thing gets trickier here is because the Canhoto, someone that's left-handed, was throughout the ages associated with the devil, and the goat was also associated with the devil, especially in the medieval times. And this is the time where young men go around causing mischief, and apparently even the devil makes an appearance. Ooh. Ooh. And talking about bonfires, that brings me to the Magusto, which is another celebration involving bonfires. It turns out that Magustos are traditionally held on the 29th of September or the 1st of November or the 11th of November, depending on the area. I wasn't really aware about this. I think in our region it's always celebrated on the 11th of November, like yeah, St. Yeah, Martin's Day. Yeah, I didn't Day. know there was another option. Yeah, but apparently in many regions in the country it's associated with, you know, it's part of the 1st of November celebrations. Okay, didn't know that. <clears throat> and Amagusto is a celebration where people get together over a bonfire to roast chestnuts and drink aguapé which is a sort of wine with low alcohol content. I think they put water in the wine. It's not really in the wine, it's in the... No, it's like the leftover the, the grapes. grapes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that becomes a different kind of beverage, I guess. Or if you're not into that kind of thing, you can drink agua ardente, which we can translate as fiery water maybe <laughs> mm -hmm. and this unlike the aguape is a very strong spirit similar to i don't know brandy maybe yeah brandy <clears throat> grappa all yeah. those things there is also the tradition of jumping over the fire and staining your face with ashes both remnant of the old pagan traditions or just people getting very drunk <laughs> and once again, to wrap up this episode, it is also interesting to note that in the region of Trás-os-Montes, chestnuts, which resemble little heads, are called cocuras. So, once right. again... There we go back to the cocas and the go. cuckoos and the crocas and the crococo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, this episode was all about heads and dead and severed heads and all going back to this ancient god <laughs> right there we go if you were not sure about what this episode was we're yeah, not sure there either. you go <laughs> it's about all of these traditions and all of these different ways of celebrating halloween and whatever came before it 
And so guys, I guess if you want to celebrate Halloween, or if you want an excuse to get drunk, for instance, you can say you're celebrating it the Portuguese way over roasted chestnuts with some very strong brandy. Why not? <laughs> Why not indeed? I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Guys, have a very lovely Halloween. I hope everyone is celebrating in, in whichever way you want. And that's it. I think we're going to finish this wine. Enjoy your Halloween and we will be enjoying the wine of the dead here. And this is where I'll stop for now. Join us on the next episode. Until then, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts and discover more about the episodes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Your comments really are crucial so that more people can find us. Bye! Bye.